Hey, it's good to be back. And uh, we've actually been in this sermon series called I Am, and really we're investigating the I Am statements of Jesus, that Jesus himself makes these claims about himself. And so if you're not a Christian here, or maybe you're investigating faith, you know, and you've always wondered what this Jesus person is about, not kind of all that goes with it, not the whole kind of um, package of Christianity, but Jesus himself, what does he have to say about himself? And over the last few weeks, we've actually looked at these metaphors. Check out this list of what we've gone through in terms of what Jesus has said about himself. He said, I I am the bread of life. And we talked about how God is, Jesus is saying that I am the sustenance that you need for life. I am the light of the world in many ways that you don't even have to have a religious background to understand this metaphor of being a light in a place of darkness. I am the shepherd and the gate. And you can see that Jesus is talking in all these metaphors, describing the kind of God that he is, who he is himself. Now, today we come to this passage where Thomas basically says, uh, I don't know where you're going. How will we know the way? And Jesus makes this very stunning statement because he's gone from these metaphors and ways that he's described himself. He's talked about being bread of life. He's talked about being the light of the world. He's talked about being a shepherd and a gate. But here he is, and now he drops this hammer and he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Now, here are the Greek words that go along with it. The Greek word for the way is the word hodos. Can I hear you say hodos? which is basically another word for road or way. And this word is actually used in different contexts. And we're going to investigate this in a little bit. When he talks about the truth, he's saying aletheia, this word for truth. And now he said, and then he also says zoe, which is the word for life. He makes these incredibly all-encompassing statements that really shock the people that are listening because here are Jesus and he's talked in these different metaphors, but now all of a sudden he's being very explicit about what he's talking about. Now this word hodos or the word way, it's actually conjures up images for people from a Hebrew background or the Jewish people that he was from, right? That he himself was Jewish. There's actually this Hebrew word that's also translated the way. The word is halakha. Can I hear you say halakha? We get words like halal cart from, no, I'm just kidding, we don't. Uh, sorry, <laughs> bad joke. Uh, but anyhow, but halakha is this word that was really this word that encompassed all of the oral tradition as it relates to how the Jewish people were supposed to live out their faith. So in other words, this halakha word was this incredible word that was basically saying the way that you're supposed to walk, the way that you're supposed to live. So for Jewish tradition then, not only the oral tradition, not only what was written out, but it was, it was basically the sum of the law. So you can imagine when Jewish people would use the word halakha, they were talking about the way. And so when Jesus basically drops this word, he basically says, I am actually the way. I mean, can you imagine all of Jewish tradition, the oral, the written, all of that that encompasses this way of living, keeping Shabbat, keeping the commandments, gathering as a family around the Shema of Deuteronomy chapter six, like all the ways of Jewish living. And here Jesus now, he comes and he drops his hammer and he basically says, I am the way, I am the halakha, I am everything that sums up what your faith and religion has been about. Now, you can imagine how startling this was for people. They're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? You, this carpenter? We know your mom and dad, Joseph and Mary, and you're here saying that you are the way that encompasses so much of what we believe about what faith is all about. But he doesn't just stop there, right? He says, I am the way, and he says, I am the truth, aletheia. Now, one of the things that we talked about about what Christians believe is that Christians believe that there is absolute truth, 
but we don't have absolute knowledge. Now, what does that mean? It basically means, yeah, we do believe there's this governing truth that is objective, that goes beyond us, but, but none of us as human beings have absolute knowledge, which hopefully gives us a certain measure of humility. Christians have been very bad, and pastors, including myself, very bad at being arrogant about that. But the reality is all of us as human beings, we, have, we don't have absolute knowledge, but we do believe there is absolute truth. This is where faith bridges that gap. Now, if I have partial knowledge, though, faith hopefully allows me to say, well, this is what I think the truth is. Now, here's the, the reality. If we do believe that there is absolute truth. Now, if, again, you're someone who maybe you don't believe that there's absolute truth. You think that truth is subject, subjective. Hear me out here. If there was absolute truth, here's what we can agree on. That if there was absolute truth, it would have to go beyond human thinking. So it'd have to transcend human thinking. It'd have to transcend geography, right? What's true here would be the same truth in Nepal or in Kenya. And truth would also be timeless, right? That what's true today would have to have been true 2,000 years ago. This is what we believe. This is what we mean by there is an absolute truth. There's something that transcends human beings, human existence. Now, here's what Christians believe. That when Jesus basically makes this claim, he says, I am aletheia. I am the aletheia. I am actually the absolute truth. All the partial knowledge that human beings have, all the things that you may have been wondering about what truth is, and Jesus is basically making this audacious claim. The same truth that governs, that transcends geography, the same truth that transcends human beings, the same truth that transcends time, that that's who Jesus is claiming to be. That's the kind of truth that he's claiming. You know what's so interesting about the Christian religion? Now, again, stay with me. If you're, not, if you're someone who's like, well, I still don't believe there's an absolute truth. There's actually a Gambian uh, scholar named Lamin Sene, who was a professor over at Yale. And he actually wrote a book called Whose Religion is Christianity? Now, he was someone who was born in Gambia, raised there, and he would teach it at, in Ghana eventually, and then at Harvard, and then at Yale. And uh, Lamin Sene, who's a scholar over history and a scholar over Christian history, one of the things that he looks at is that after the colonization of Africa, of much of Africa, much was made about, oh, when, when the colonizers, when they leave Africa, then surely what will happen to Africa is it will, it will adopt indigenized religions or it will become predominantly Muslim. Uh, but one of the things that he, um, he writes about in terms of the history of what happened in Africa was after the colonizers left, Christianity actually exploded in Africa to the point where it would become a majority religion in Africa. Now, one of the things that he investigates, because people thought, oh, the only reasons why people are Christian in Africa is because of the colonizers. But the exact opposite happened. Why did Christianity explode once Africans began to see this uh, religion as an indigenous one? And it's because of the story of Jesus that transcends culture, the story of sacrifice, the story of love, the story of kindness, the story of truth. And one of the things that he talks about is when we talk about whose religion is Christianity, some people might say, well, Christianity is a religion of the West that has been concocted by, it's a white man's religion. And the reality is, no, 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 Jesus was a Jewish carpenter, a minority oppressed person. And now in the world, the center of Christianity doesn't actually exist in the West. It's not like a middle-aged white person in Indiana. If that's any of you all, no, you know, no shade here. <laughs> I'm just saying, it's not a white male from Indiana. It's, it's actually more likely to be someone from the global south. Now, isn't that interesting that the global movement of the Christian faith, why would it become, why would it so transcend geography in such a way that it would explode once the colonizers left? 
and in Africa become this incredible movement, and in uh, Latin America as well as in Asia. What is going on here? Now, what if I were to contend it's because the Christian truth actually transcends geography? And in many ways, because it transcends geography, it's just one little hint that perhaps there is an absolute truth. And this absolute truth, now Jesus himself is making this audacious claim. So much so that here stands in front of you a Korean American guy who's living in New York City, whose parents immigrated from Korea, talking about a Jewish carpenter in a Salvation Army that's run by someone who is uh, right now the director. He was born in London. I mean, and you know, Solomon and Catherine, they work with uh, the Kenyan embassy and here they are here uh, as part of our team and here we are worshiping this Jewish carpenter. What, like, what gives, what is this global truth that somehow each one of us are willing to follow? And Jesus is making this claim. He's basically saying, I am the truth. But he doesn't only say I'm the way, I am the truth, but he also says, I am the life. I'm the zoe. Now, again, this is so different than the way that Jesus has been talking about, uh, like, who he is. He's talked in all these metaphors. Now, all of a sudden, he's really saying some really audacious statements. I am the way, I am the truth. And then he says, I am the life. Charles Taylor, he wrote in his book, A Secular Age, which is this very thick and dense tome about kind of what secular society is all about. And he's not necessarily writing from a religious perspective. But one of the things he talks about is how there's a longing for transcendence, that human beings, especially in urban secular settings like New York City, there's like a, a loss of this sense of transcendence. But people are out here, we're all hustling to somehow reach that level of of transcendence. We're we're trying to do it through money. We're trying to do it by crushing it in our careers, by like having the pristine LinkedIn profile. He doesn't write these things in particular, but he's basically talking about the human ambition that's looking and longing for significance and for the life, the zoe, for abundant life. But one of the things he talks about is the secular experiment somehow, especially with the loss of religion, has left us with this haunting kind of eminence. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that a keen way of saying that? Like a haunting eminence. There's this longing that somehow, no matter what I achieve, no matter how wonderful I am, no matter where I live, no matter how many fun experiences I can uh, experience in the world, no matter, no matter how many Instagram followers I have, no matter how much money I amass, Human beings, when left without the transcendence, transcendent, all we're left with is this haunting eminence for something more. I mean, this is why Jesus is so startling when he basically says, I am the life. I'm the Zoe. That longing you have for relationship, that somehow relationship is what's gonna solve your problem. When, when that, that guy finally falls for you or says yes, or when that girl finally says, whatever it might be, or when, whenever you think, oh, I'll just have a kid, and after I have a kid, then things will be better. Then you had a kid, and those first three months are awful. <laughs> this haunting eminence. And here what Jesus, Jesus is basically saying, listen, I am the way, the hodos, the halakha, I am the truth, the aletheia, the truth that transcends geography and time, And I'm the life, I'm the Zoe. And he brings all of this down in this one statement. Now that is absolutely stunning. 
Uh, here's why it's stunning. I remember I was preaching one time, and as an illustration, I was uh, talking about uh, in college how uh, I tried out for our college football team. And, uh, and, I, and it, so in the sermon illustration, I'm like, yeah, you know, like I, uh, you know, I was pretty good at football in high school, and so I, I tried out for our college team in college. And I remember I said that as an illustration, and there was kind of an eruption of laughter in the room. And uh, I was like, I'm serious, you know, like that wasn't a joke. Like I, I really did, you know? And then people were just like, oh, they, they felt kind of awkward. Now here's the thing, right? Like I, I made that statement kind of, I was trying to basically give an illustration that was going somewhere, but I was trying to make this statement about like, yeah, like I liked football. I was pretty good at football and I really wanted to play in college and stuff. You know, like I was trying to make this statement. People laughed at me because you're mean. No, I'm just kidding. But, but like people laughed at me because they thought I was joking. They're like, like, you, like, that's kind of an audacious statement, right? Like, like you tried out, like, you? You're so small and weak and slow, you know? Like, and now, in that moment, I just realized, like, that's what happens, right? Like, if anyone makes any kind of audacious claims, most people, we kind of laugh it off. Like, no one would dare make that kind of claim. Like, to the point where I just make a comment, like, I tried out for the college football team, and people are laughing. They're laughing because they're like, Drew's not that audacious. There's no way he would have done that. But I did. Uh, now, can you imagine Jesus still making this kind of claim? This over-the-top claim. Like, he's not just saying, I am just the way. Halakha. He's not just saying, I am just the truth. This absolute truth that we believe is transcendent truth. I am just the life, the zoe that you and I have always been longing for. No, he makes all three statements. It's unbelievable that he would make such an audacious claim. Now, as I was thinking about influential people in the United States, and I I was thinking like, who are people that like, maybe could make this kind of claim? And And I just kind of came up with a list, right? Like there's Donald Trump. Like you could almost imagine him saying something like this, right? Something so audacious. Right, and we would, you know, some of us laugh because he already has already said some audacious statements. There's Kylie Jenner. Uh, she's one of the most, I think she's the most followed uh, Instagram person or second or third. She's on that list somewhere, uh, which is why I added her. I think Cristiano Ronaldo was also there, but I kept it to folks in the States, right? Kylie Jenner, Elon Musk, Tesla. I mean, in some ways, some of us can almost imagine some of these making these kinds of audacious claims, But most of us, we would scoff at it or be like, oh, that's just Trump being Trump or that's just Elon Musk being Elon Musk or that's just whoever, or or Kanye or Ye, right? I mean, we can, in some ways, we laugh because these folks, um, in some ways, they have this outsized influence and yet these are human beings. Taylor Swift, I just put Google. (laughs) Just Google's not a person. But Google's pretty powerful, right? I mean, Google, and then I put LeBron James, and I put Barnaby Lowe because I, I just thought, who's someone at Hope Midtown who I greatly respect and think the world of? That's Barnaby. You, know, you may not know him. Barnaby works with our kids. He's an amazing guy. Just wanted you to know. You know? But like, I mean, can you imagine any of these people, right? If, we were to, like if any of these people basically came with this kind of statement, that's essentially equating themselves with who God is, that you are the divine, most of us would scoff and be like, no way. Come on. 
just as ridiculous as it is that Drew tried out for the college football team, that's, that's how crazy it would be that any of these people with outsized influence would dare make the claim that they are like God. And yet here Jesus is, not with any kind of joking, self-deprecating manner, but just with as much self-confidence and humility, he basically dropped this truth. Actually, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Look at what he goes on to say. He goes on to say, Jesus answered, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, if you want to, Father, he's referring to God. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the only way to the divine. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Oh, man. I mean, can you imagine? Jesus is basically going for it. With full confidence, he's making this claim. I am the way. All the traditions, all the, the, the practices that you've had as a people, all the ways that you've wondered how to connect with the divine, it's right here. I'm the truth. The smartest people in the world, the wisest philosophers in the world, isn't that interesting that even for the course of human history, no one has improved on the moral teachings of Jesus? There's a timelessness to it. There's a global sense to it. And Jesus is basically saying, I am the truth. And then he says, I am the life. Now, some of you, your sensibilities, you're kind of like, Jesus. And now when you talk about Jesus in these terms, I'm a little bit perturbed that he would kind of say this about himself, and rightly so, because human beings just don't do this. Even human beings have outsized influence, and yet Jesus does make this statement. Now, scholars have pondered, like, what are the options for Jesus? Because here he is, he's outing himself by basically making this audacious claim in full sincerity about who he is. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Scholars have claimed he could either be a liar. He's just lying about himself. He knows who he is. He knows he's not divine. He's either a liar or he's just gone mad. He's a lunatic. Or he's Lord. He is who he says he is. And the question that every single one of us need to confront, whether you're a Christian or you're not, is who is this Jesus person and who is he to you? Is he a liar? Is he just a great moral teacher? He never claimed to just be a great moral teacher. He claimed to be God. He claimed to say all the longings that you have for getting into that school or getting that job, all the long I am your greatest fulfillment. All the longings you have for that relationship. He says, I am your greatest fulfillment. All the wonderings and postulating you've had for what is truth. He says, I am am the truth. And the question for you and for me, no matter what your faith background or religious disposition is, is what is, if Jesus has made that claim about himself, how many of us have really confronted whether that's true for us or not? Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he Lord? 
You know what's interesting about Jesus is, of course, the story of Jesus and the reason why we believe in him is not because, it's simply because it's a great story, right? This Jewish carpenter, break against all odds, starts this movement that would change the world. But really, it's centered around the Easter story. And of course, the Easter story is the story of Jesus who lives and he teaches, but he lives and he dies and he resurrects from the grave. And this is what we're moving towards. Uh, Just giving you a hint of what's coming on Easter, everyone. (laughs) It's the story that Jesus is actually alive, that he beats death. The clearest evidence that we are finite, that we are limited, is death. And yet Jesus beats death. And we believe this is a historical event that happens, that Jesus actually does this. Now, Andy Stanley, who's a pastor down in Atlanta, he has this great phrase where this is what he says about why he follows Jesus, okay? He says, if a man can predict his own death and resurrection and pull it off, that's the key part, right? Not only does he predict it, he pulls it off. I just go with whatever that man says, right? Like, listen, I, you know, you want to talk about, you know, how did all the animals fit in the ark and Jonah and, you know, the fish and all that, like all those questions. Listen, I just know if a man can predict his own death and resurrection and pull it off, I'll just go with whatever that man says. But here's the reality, right? Like I can give all of these claims to you and talk about what Jesus says about himself and maybe even give all these arguments for why Jesus is real and why we should all worship him. But there's a difference and you know it and I know it. There's a difference between actually knowing about this Jesus and truly knowing him. You know there's a difference. I mean, we all do. Like, I can tell you that, I can tell you about my wife, Tina. I think she's lovely and beautiful and she's this tall and, you know, and her voice sounds like this. But until you meet her, then you would truly understand how lovely she is. You you truly get to know some of the quirks about her. You know, one of the words that's used constantly in the Gospel of John, which we've been taking these I am statements from, is the word gnosko. And it's the word for to know someone, to know. And a lot of times in the Gospel of John, it's actually used 49 times throughout the Gospel of John. So constantly he's using this phrase, gnosko. Like the world did not know Jesus. The people did not know him. But these people did know him. And so there's this invitation in many ways in the Gospel of John. For people, as Jesus is making these audacious claims, I am the bread of life, I'm the light of the world, I'm the shepherd, I am the gate, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There are these constant invitations to know him, to not just know about him, know facts about him, know that he said this about himself, but to truly know him to truly be moved by him. One of the most beautiful passages that was covered last week that Sarah talked about is this passage. Check it out. He says, I am the good shepherd. And look at, he uses the word gnosko here. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. And look at what he says about if the sheep really knew him, they would know that I lay down my life 
for my sheep. There's a difference between knowing about someone and truly knowing them. Uh, This past week, I was in Los Angeles where I was born and raised to my immigrant parents. And it was actually the first time I saw my parents um, in person throughout the pandemic. So it was kind of a significant moment for us. And uh, my mom also recently got diagnosed with an illness that she needs surgery for. And so it was just a really meaningful moment for me to be back there. But I've shared before about um, some of the the pain in my own upbringing, especially around my father and my relationship with him because uh, of his anger and his violence and his temper. And I was a bit anxious about going back to see them, not only because I was excited about it, but because there was all sorts of conflicting emotions. Now, my dad and I, I've always talked about the history of my childhood, but ever since then, we've worked on our relationship quite a bit. And I can honestly say it's the best that it's ever been. But nonetheless, there's still some anxiety whenever I go back to my childhood home. Whenever my father enters the room, there's kind of my heart starts to beat a little bit faster and I start feeling a bit fearful and anxious. And, uh, and different. And my wife has noticed this about throughout our 14-year marriage. She's noticed some of these changes that happen to me when I'm around my father. So, uh, the, so I was nervous about going back. And so here we were, though. We went back and uh, we were there for one week. And uh, different psychologists have talked about how when families, when someone has experienced trauma or pain in a family, and then they leave the family system, they can start to behave in a different manner as they carve out kind of, but when they go back to that family system, after three days, uh, people revert to back when they were like 10 years old or something, you know? Uh, I don't know if that happens in your family, uh, and if you didn't even, you weren't aware of it, it Maybe it's happened. So anyhow, so I was just kind of cognizant of this kind of reality of going back to my family of origin and spending time with my dad. And when I went back, I just remember thinking, like, I wonder, I wonder where I am in my life and in my own journey, where I can be with him and not be triggered or not get agitated or anxious. So we started spending all this time together, and... Uh, and by day three, I think my wife was like, okay, I think I'm going to tap out here. I'm going to go spend some time with the sisters-in-law, you know. And, but there was something in me that was kind of, um, I don't know, growing or changing. And I said, you know what? I'll take one for the team. <laughs> Sorry, this makes it sound like the way that we approach my relationship with my dad is like something um, really ominous or something. But I was just like, no, I can spend some time with my dad. And so... Uh, I ended up spending some one-on-one time, and then the last day, right before we left on our flight, I spent three—I spent a three and a half hour conversation with him from 7 a.m. to 10:30 a.m. And I was kind of shocked that that happened. And Tina was like, "What did you guys talk about for all that time?" And I said, "You know, it went by so fast because." I just started asking him about his life. I asked him what it was like to be an immigrant to the country. I asked him about how he fell in love with mom. I asked him about where he first moved when he immigrated to the country and how he went about moving from place to place and what it was like to have four boys in three and a half years. I'm a twin, by the way, that's how that happened. So, (laughs) you know. 
And I just, and I realized, like, as we were talking, I realized I came away from the conversation with my dad, and I realized, like, I had painted him in this two-dimensional picture because he's just dad who's angry all the time. But for one of the first times in my life, I was able to see him not necessarily as dad, but as a human being with longings and hopes and ambitions and fears. And uh, One of my mentors once said to me that one of the big changes that happened to him in his relationship with his dad was when he, he stopped seeing him as dad, but he started seeing him by his first name. Now, you gotta understand, as a Korean-American immigrant kid, like, I feel like getting slapped for saying that, right? For like, save, like treating my dad by his first name. But whenever I, I took that to heart in this past time, I, I just wanted to get to know him as a human being. And it was just this extraordinary time of actually getting to know him and then hearing of the hustle and the fears of when he had my brother and I, my twin brother and I, he was so shocked that they had twins. He had no idea how they were going to feed us. And it was just this moment of like, and I was laughing with my dad for one of the first times in my life. And we're talking and he's just sharing stories and I'm approaching it with curiosity instead of judgment or reactivity. I just realized there's a massive difference between like just knowing about someone or being triggered by someone and actually kind of gnosko someone, you know, like getting to know them. And this is why John, time and time again, Jesus is making these statements. He's making these statements and all these metaphors of darkness and light and the world does not know him, does not gnosko him. But I know the Father. And if you know the Father, you've, you know me. And, and when Jesus is making these statements, he's, he's making this invitation to you and to me to not simply know about someone or to know their story, but to actually know him. To know the one who lays down his life for his sheep. Because the greatest distance, perhaps for faith, for you and for me every single day, is the distance from our head to our hearts. Have you allowed Jesus to not only kind of capture your mind, but to capture your heart, to know him as the God who not only does he make this audacious claim, right? Because here's what most people do with their power. Whenever someone's in power, what do they do? (laughs) They do whatever they can to keep their power, to accumulate that power at the expense of others. But what Jesus does is he lays down his power. He lays down his life. Why? So that you can gnosko him, so that you can know him, so that you can know that this is what God is like, the God of the universe, the way, the truth, and the life, is a God who's not hoarding power to himself, not arrogating it, not leveraging it against you, but instead laying down his life for me and for you.